When it's time to seed grass, fertilize turf, or add a pop of color to your yard, Blaine's Farm and Fleet's got you covered with unbeatable deals on lawn and garden essentials. Find value on everything you need in-store or online at farmandfleet.com. Dr. Matthew Lazara is a meteorologist, faculty, and department chair for physical sciences at METC, and also senior scientist at UW-Madison. In both roles, he's part of the team of scientists that work with the automatic weather stations for the U.S. Antarctic program. With around 60 weather stations, they are observing surface weather across an area bigger than the U.S. and Mexico combined. Many of the weather tools that they use there can also be found on farms here in Wisconsin. From the southern end of the longest barn in Madison, Madison, this is Carrie Mess. He shares more about the research they're doing. We're trying to understand how the weather behaves in Antarctica. And that's been an ongoing project because it's something that just takes with such an underobserved location like the Antarctic. You know, we really, it is very, very sparsely observed compared to the United States. You know, if we showed you a map of the U.S. with all the automatic weather stations, it'd be so colored in. We have so much great, rich observing here. Antarctica, it's really, really sparse. You can go long distances with nobody and no observations and not even the weather stations that I'm doing. So that's one thing is just understanding how the weather behaves. The weather information is also put into numerical weather prediction models. In other words, you know, we have computer simulations that tell us what the future weather might be like. And that's rather valuable because that effort to have a computer simulate the future weather is a global endeavor. We just don't do it here in the background, (laughs) you know, um, in the U.S., just kind of figuring out what's happening here. You really need to know what's happening worldwide to get a good forecast. And so our weather observation are inserted into that process to provide that starting point for a simulation into the future. Now that we've been having this network for many years, now in its 42nd year, we can now start having an estimate of what the climate is like based on observations. This has come a long way from the days of the Farmer's Almanac. We're really using a lot of science and computer technology. So some of the technology that you're using in Antarctica is pretty similar to what we use here to observe our weather. I had fun digging into the history. And in the 1950s when there was a serious concerted effort to observe and, and establish stations in the Antarctic among a variety of nations in the ni- late 1950s, there was a big effort to try to figure out, can we get a weather station run automatically by itself? And it took until the late 1970s before some engineers figured out how to do it. Being engineers, they were happy to have done the work and then walked away because they really wanted to do other stuff. And a meteorologist here at Wisconsin took over the project and he was actually doing weather stations here in Wisconsin, studying weather in Wisconsin, studying air pollution in Wisconsin. And so the technology then was homemade, homebrewed, unique, uh, special for the Antarctic too, right? It was military specified, you know, the kind of equipment you would put on um, some of the spacecraft that were being built in the 1970s, you know, like the Pioneer spacecraft and the Voyager spacecraft. Today, though, the network is primarily using the similar commercial off-the-shelf equipment that farmers may be using in their own, they have an automatic weather station of their own. So turned out some of those higher-ordered systems are able to be used in a lot of spots in the Antarctic. Not that we still don't use some of that homemade equipment. We still do. It's amazing how well that that older equipment has run and is still running very well in the Antarctic for 40 years. It was really meant to last. But we we do use a lot of the same, that kind of same idea, the same technology idea. And that's one of some of my newer researches that we're actually starting to go back to. Instead of just using commercial off-the-shelf equipment, we're starting to get back to some homemade gear that we can really make use of, once again, tailored for the the Antarctic. But otherwise, yeah, a lot of the network 
network is some of the same kind of thing. Many farmers are using apps to measure rainfall now. It goes right down to the specific field. The data coming back seems to be really accurate, but how do these apps know that a field that's only one mile or a half a mile away from another field got more or less rain? Yeah, it's a good question. So today, at least in U.S., we have a lovely network of weather radar systems that are very, very ubiquitous. There, there, there are lots of them. In Wisconsin, we have several. And they have technology capabilities in built into them where they can, they're not only just watching the precipitation, which is what generally folks are probably doing, right? You probably have an app on your phone or you're watching it on the web on a computer or seeing it on the television where they show you the radar information. And it's generally the, the echoes of where there's likely precipitation happening or there's more precipitation or hydrometeors, as we like to affectionately call it, meteorology in the clouds. But that same radar, while it's doing that basic well-known thing that we all very much like looking at, it is also collecting information about how much, what kind of stuff might be falling out of that cloud. It's not perfect, these algorithms, but they're getting, they've gotten quite good, actually. And so what they're doing is that they're integrating through the depth of the atmosphere, from the bottom all the way up through the cloud depth, getting an essence of how much liquid there is. And so when you do that, you can estimate precipitation as a result. And because the radar network is, like I said, there's several, right? In Wisconsin, we have one in the Milwaukee Sullivan area. There's one in La Crosse and the Green Bay. Add up this many in the area, you have good coverage. And because their quality of resolution return is fairly good, you can get fairly accurate maps of what the precipitation is like. And that's just one method. If you complement it with additional methods, so for example, some folks may in this community may participate. There are amateur and citizen weather observing networks around the United States. One of the well-known ones is the Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, and Snow Network, Kokoras, where there are folks out there with rain gauges just collecting information, and there's actually quite a few of them. You know, there's several per county in some parts of Wisconsin, which is really great because it adds information to that collection. I participate myself. And so that really kind of helps when you get ground truth. Someone's got a rain gauge underneath those clouds in addition to technology like a radar that can actually provide that to you. It sounds slightly more advanced than my five-gallon pail out on the back patio that I yeah, look I mean, in to you know, see if it's got a lot of rain or a little rain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny. I have I enjoy te- when I teach weather and climate classes. I enjoy bringing up the different sensors we use to collect, you know, rainfall, like standard rain gauge, which is the one we use on Cookeros. It's it's the basics. A lot of folks might have one. Whereas you're right, there are fancier rain gauges. Like you can get tipping bucket gauges, you know, which is what, by the way, an actual official observing location, like here in Madison or in Milwaukee, these surface automated observing systems that they have at those airports. That's what they have built into them. Is a tipping bucket. It's an automatic system. It can automatically measure it. And you can get one of those if you want. You know, for your house, it's kind of fun to to watch. They're you know eighty bucks or something like that. But there are the agricultural community, I believe, has also used weighing bucket rain gauges, which is lovely when you have power and and you're but you're in a remote area and you can't go dump it out. Um, I have to admit, I've never used one. My like I said, my research keeps me in a place where we have snow problems in Antarctica. We don't have liquid precipitation that much, and so I don't really get into measurement of precipitation that way. We do it. We do measurements very differently, and actually have challenges measuring precipitation in Antarctica. Whereas here, you can do neat things like that, where you're like, well, I've got power, and I can just get a weighing bucket. And it's kind of neat that, that that's an actual device that literally weighs the rainfall into the bucket, and, and then it eventually dumps it out, because it gives you a sense of how much you can convert that weight into actually how much fell out of it. So those are some of the techniques that are used to get that information. And it is amazing. You can get it pretty accurate, you know, right down to, to, you know, to your neighborhood. Circling back to your research, Matt, are you seeing trends in Antarctica that then filter up here to Wisconsin? 
it? Some of the early work done with the Weather Station Network and in some of the main U.S. Uh, or other staffed stations where people are located, because that was what was early done, was first realizing phenomena that we talk about that are connected to us here in the Midwest, like El Nino. A lot of people hear about that, and they know that whether we have an El Nino or a La Nina year affects the kind of winters we have, for example. That kind of thing is happening in the Antarctic as well. We're seeing the similar impact, some of it in some parts of Antarctica very strongly. And so that's a noticeable thing. Another element, of course, is the change of climate. And in lots of other parts of the world, it's not uniform. Similarly, in Antarctica, we are seeing some spots of the Antarctic have gone through warming. We've done one study in West Antarctica, definitely saw significant warming over a 50-year period. It's funny, I did a study on South Pole Station about 10 years ago. Couldn't say that it had changed much, but now some colleagues of mine looked at the most recent 10 years in addition to the stuff that we worked with and said, oh, yeah, it has. Some places we've seen not yet, things are very flat for change. So it is interesting how dynamically variable, in fact, that's one of the things that's about Antarctica, it's very variable in its change. And so some of the same discussions we're having here, you know, like, gee, are we noticing it being warmer here in the Midwest? Are we getting changes in precipitation or storminess here in the Midwest? Those are the kinds of things we're starting to talk about in the Antarctic as well. Antarctica kind of lags a little bit behind our understanding of weather in the mid-latitudes where we live here in the you know, Midwest because it's been well studied here. It's heavily observed here. In the Antarctic, we're a little behind on that. And, and so, you know, when I started working in the Antarctic back in the 1990s, weather forecasting, you couldn't really talk about a forecast beyond, you know, a couple of days. That's it. If you ask for a three-day forecast, I think the weather forecasters in the weather office at the U.S. main station would kind of giggle and say, we have no idea, you know. <laughs> Whereas today, you couldn't have that serious conversation with them about a three-day forecast or a four-day forecast, and they're happy to really chat with you because we have more confidence in that. Same here, right? And we now feel pretty comfortable chatting about five, seven, and you see a lot of folks on the television will put up a 10-day forecast because we have more confidence to be able to portray that. I'm not sure that the 10-day forecast and farmers are best friends, though. No, it's <laughs> exactly. The further out you go, the far the more risk in it being accurate, right on. And there is a limit. It's one of the things I did do for some of my undergraduate literary background research was it, there is a limit on predictability. It's only two weeks. That's it. That's the theoretical limit. You can't get any higher than that. Even with all the improvements we're going to always put into this because of great desire to want to know, it's not possible. We'll always be eaten up by this thing called chaos, chaos theory. <laughs> the system is too nonlinear. It has too many variables, too much uncertainty, and it always invades the system so that you can't predict it that, with accuracy beyond that. In the end, Mother Nature is still in control. Absolutely. From the southern end of the longest barn in Madison, this is Carrie Mess.